I think our biggest challenge is going to be the heterogeneity within the population and whether we actually use that as a lens to examine health inequity. We cannot just compare the whole population. We need to start looking inside and see what happened within the population so we can make change. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this podcast season is brought to you in collaboration with the American Board of Internal Medicine. This season will complement their Building Trust Initiative. Our goal is to provide historical context of different disparities and harm, show how it is connected to the inequities that still happen, but also share how changemakers are taking action to ensure that history doesn't continue to repeat itself. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Burrell. In this episode where we are going to chat about Latino and Hispanic health, So to open, share with our audience a little bit about your background and what exactly you do in the health field. So thank you for having me. My name is Luisa Borrell. I'm a distinguished professor at the City University of New York, Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. So I am a social epidemiologist, but I started as a dentist. I practiced in New York for a year in different contexts, private practice, community health organization, system use, homeless shelter, a school-based program. And after seeing the selection bias of the patient that couldn't reach and make it to the dentist, I figured that I needed to do something more than just being in a room with a patient. So I went back to school. I got a doctorate in epidemiology, and I have been doing this for the past 22 years, and I still wake up, and I want to go to work. So that's a good sign. (laughs) Yes. For me, as a social epidemiologist, I'm more interested in the exposure, specifically your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, whether it's measured through education, income, or your neighborhood, where you live, because that shape what you do in life and the things that you have access to. And then you made that transition out of practicing dentistry once you saw inequities and access gaps. Well, imagine I work in the Bronx. I was in the Bronx for a year, so I was exposed to all the inequities that you can think about. it. And it's interesting because in New York, city. You have all these different hospitals and satellite in the Bronx, but it's one of the boroughs that have the highest inequity. And before the ACA, there were almost 50 million individuals without insurance. And the majority of those were Hispanic. As I always say, having access is not the same as accessing quality of care. What are other inequities that specific groups are facing currently? So we talk about asthma for Puerto Rican. Obesity and diabetes are a big issue for the Mexican-American community. Dominicans 
are assigned to shows on high prevalence of hypertension. Migrant worker, what we see a lot is occupational injury because of the work condition. And also the fact that because they work in places that are usually a little bit distant from urban cities, they tend to have less access to care. Not to mention that they don't get a lot of benefits. Because if you get hurt on the job and there's no hospital or urgent care close, but then you already don't have insurance, then if your injury causes you to be out of work and then you lose even more income, it's just a whole domino effect. You have to rely on the curanderos or the person that knows something within the community. And that sometimes work, but that sometimes may not be the best. Wow. So when we think about Hispanic and Latino health, what does that truly entail? Because there's no one group. There's so many different subgroups and subcultures, and it's not monolithic. So what does that look like when you're studying a population but there's so much diversity within that one population. Well, you raise a very interesting point because <laughs> most people think about the population as homogeneous. They feel like, oh, these people, they all speak Spanish, they are the same. Yes, in the 2020 census, we have a population that identify with at least 27 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And as you can imagine, we are very different. You cannot expect that someone from Puerto Rico or from Cuba will be the same that a Dominican or a Mexican-American. So when we think about the hell of the population, everybody think about the aggregate Hispanic population. That statistic that we use is driven by the group that represent the large proportion of the population, which is the Mexican-American. They represent approximately 35 million of the population, which is almost half. We are right now at 62, 63 million. Mexican-American are younger. You probably know about the Hispanic paradox. So this was a concept that was floated down in the 80s about how despite the low SES access to healthcare. The Hispanic population have better infant and adult mortality than white. And more so African-American with who they share not only the minority status, but also they were more disadvantaged than African-American. So this phenomenon has been studied for the past 40-something years. And the more and more we dive in on it, we're starting to see that it has only applied to Mexican-American and recent immigrants. Because as people stay in this country and they acculturate, things change. Their health status starts to resemble the health status of the population in the U.S. Wow. Just to give you an example that is usually thrown out there. Hispanic have life expectancy before COVID. It was approximately 3.2 or 3.3 years higher than the non-Hispanic white. But what happened, as we all know, COVID, which was supposed to be an equalizer, disproportionately affected African-American and Hispanic because they were considered essential workers. 
So that shave off 4.5 years for African-American in life expectancy and 4.2 and Hispanic. In the context of the potential explanation for this paradox, one of the things that usually come around is the social support and social network of the Hispanic population. Issues around healthy migrant effect, about the salmon bias or the fact that some people come healthy here, work for some time and go home and die, and misclassification at the time of death. And that go back to the whole data disaggregation. Hispanic can identify with any race. So they can be identified as white, black, and the majority identify as other. But there is a, a proportion that identify as white. So there have been some misclassification. We are seeing that Cubans are the oldest within within the Hispanic population. It's going to be interesting what happened in the next 10 years, because we also saw in the, in the 2020 that a lot of group outgrew the, the expectation, Venezuelan, Salvadorian. Colombian and Mexican, on the other hand, decreased their growth. Oh, wow. We we also are seeing that there have been a decrease in the Hispanic population in the proportion of foreign-born. And we know that foreign-born bring the culture that we talk yeah. about. Yeah. So that's also concerning. So all those changes, demographic and cultural, are going to have an impact on the health of the population as a whole, but more so at the different group. So really stratifying the data by those smaller subgroups. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In my field, we usually talk about this epidemiological triad. We also talk about time, whether are people that are recent immigrants, they've been here for a long time. And we talk about place because it's important. Mm. So even location of if oh, you're... Yeah. A Mexican-American living in New York as opposed to Texas or? Very different. Very different experience. Culturally, health-wise, everything. So not overlooking any of the details is what I'm hearing is you have to get very granular. Yeah, You have to. You have to. And you have to pay attention to that, to time, place, and person. We are living in a world of intersectionality. Everything is connected. It doesn't matter that I am a... Black, Hispanic, woman, educated. I need to take those three things together to see how that's going to affect my health. Seeing like the sum of the identities sometimes may more than the independent pieces. If we add to that the structural racism that comes from every angle and in every aspect of our life, the math can be off the chart. Yeah, because that impacts your mental health, that impacts your physical health, stress presents itself in the body. Yeah. If we just want to summarize racism, racism is the father or the creator of race and ethnicity. And then you have this individual ascribed characteristic because we have to check a box that sort of distribute risk and exposure unequally. And that unequal distribution is what generate the hell inequities that we see every day. Being a minority in the U.S. is not easy. <laughs> what it makes it even worse is that somehow the system try to put minorities against each other rather than 
come together because we are all facing the same issues. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Black, whether it's Hispanic, American Indian or Native American, we are all facing the same issues. They know that there is power and unity and marginalized communities coming together to unite. So that division is definitely strategic for sure. And for you as a researcher, what are some of the harms that have been done historically to Hispanic and Latino cultures that have led to the inequities that we see today? The Mexican-American that literally the United States took half of their country off Mm -hmm. in the 1800s. And now we treat them as undocumented when some of them have been in New Mexico, Texas, California, forever. That's what they know. That's their country. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it is all that history of inequity and the us and then. For example, we can talk about the Puerto Rican mass sterilization in the 50. It started at 7% of Puerto Rican women were sterilized. And by like 1956, 1958, one in three women was sterilized and they didn't even know. And that was part of a testing or the dose or the oral contraceptive. Mm-hmm. And now we are paying more attention about the ethics of conducting a study outside the U.S. But in the past, a lot of things were either unknown or unspoken that were done in other countries. When the HIV started, a lot of studies were conducted that didn't have the same rigorous protocol as we would do in the U.S. So the one for Puerto Rican, that was a big issue. The other issue that was done to the Puerto Rican population, which was the massive diaspora, came in the 1898, 1900, at the beginning of the 1900s, that they were placed in the same neighborhood where African-Americans were in New York in the Bronx specifically. And most of those neighborhoods were either public housing or close to the highway. So because of that, the Puerto Rican population, especially the children, have one of the highest asthma Mm -hmm. in the U.S. So going back to the paradox, there you have two populations at the extreme. You have Mexican-American children with the lowest proportion of or prevalence of asthma in the U.S. And then you have Puerto Rican with the highest. They are also more likely to use the emergency department because of poor control of asthma and more likely to die. And those are things that are rooted in inequities, whether we intend to be socially or not. The way that they were placed, living close to the highways with the pollution and, and the condition or the public housing, that's the root of the asthma status that we see in those children today. It's sad because that happened many years ago and continue to happen now in the Bronx. As I was telling you before, where you live, shave your house. So if you live close to the MTA bus depot, whether you're trying to manage your asthma or not, that's going to have an an impact when you go outside. So those are the things that accumulate, add up to the health profile of what we see 
within the different subgroup. And interestingly, for the Hispanic population, we only really talk about the health status of the Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, Cubans, and now we are starting to talk about Dominicans because those are the group that are more salient in the U.S. In New York City, we have a huge representation of different groups. So you can here get some granularity of the data. And the more deep you get into the disaggregation, the more inequities you find. And that's completely masked when you aggregate everyone as the Hispanic or the Latino population. It's so interesting that you brought up the case of asthma because I'm originally from Queens, New York, and I also have asthma. And it wasn't until I was getting my master's in public health where I learned that the EPA had a website where you can go and look at your address and what the harms are in the area. And I was in my 20s finding this out. And it's just being able to connect the dots later in life, but realizing like, wow, that's what I lived through. That's what I was exposed to. You know, health literacy is a big issue because we don't really talk at the community level about Mm -hmm. the issues that the community face, not even about the disparity or the inequity between the different groups. We all feel like we live together, we take the trains together, we go to work together, but we don't really talk about those issues. How do we even begin to start having these conversations? Because similar to Hispanic and Latino communities in the Black community, it's what happens in the house stays in the house. You don't talk about family business. And so that comes down to health issues, if there were more conversations around this, we would be able to share those resources, right? Oh, yeah. We're doing more and more collaboration between academia and community organization, NGOs, and some of those organizations that are working directly with the community. Everyone in the family has someone that go to church. Someone go to church, and if someone learns something, it's going to bring it home. Mm-hmm. And as you said before, but staying home in the home is staying in the home. But if someone brings good news, other people will start to either want to know more or start to say, okay, so-and-so say that this is not good, so we should pay attention to that. For the Hispanic population, the issue is about the social support because we always try to maintain this familism thing. And... If someone learns something, it just spread out, just trickle down through the whole family. When we get together, we talk about those issues. We talk about health. We talk about obesity. is a big issue in our community right now. Mm-hmm. It's starting with kids. So we talk about that. And we talk about people need to exercise more. When they need to walk. They need to eat more healthy. And those conversations need to happen, starting at the house, as you say, in order for that to happen, someone had to bring the knowledge. Someone had to bring it to the table. So we all become engaged and become active participants. It is a work in progress, but I think it's happening more and more. And I think as the 
population get more educated, that's going to be an asset because we know that, for example, education have direct and indirect effect for health. You have the direct effect because it gives you some income, it gives you access to have insurance, but also have the indirect because you can not only make informed decision related to health for yourself, but also you can influence your family about that. With social support and social network, we have an opportunity to spread the wealth around health, not only for ourselves, but also for everyone that we relate. I love that. I feel like there's so much about generational healing, you mm-hmm. know, and like you said, people going out of the family unit, finding the information and then bringing that back and how that helps everyone. It's beautiful. This weekend, I was together with family and there were three generations. Everyone there, the grandmother, the mother, the grandkids. And you start to see how even the grandkids are born in the U.S. They still have a lot of the culture because that's something that passed through generation to generation. So even though they born in the U.S. and everything, we still eat the things that we like to eat in Dominican Republic. And those things are important. Sometimes you don't pay a lot of attention to it, but those are the things that keep the culture. And culture is not only about dancing merengue and dancing salsa, but also about the things that we do that keep us healthy. Yeah, and being able to pass that down as well. And as we're looking towards the future and being hopeful about reducing these inequities, what are some tips that you would like to suggest to people to do that can help them be a part of the solution? A good start is always connecting with the community because every community, every every community has organization that try to keep the culture. Queens is the most diverse county in the U.S. So I live in a neighborhood that is probably the most diverse when it comes to the Hispanic population. And every weekend is some celebration or Independence Day from some country. (laughs) And those are things that are usually organized by community organizations and close to the neighborhood. And those organizations also have the health component to educate people about vaccination prevention and and things like that. Breast cancer awareness, let's do the screening, colon cancer. It is good to sort of identify what are the organizations in your community and what are they doing because they usually complement each other. That's the beginning. Yeah, and I loved what you mentioned about being within communities and, and immersing yourself and making those human connections. I feel like human connection Over the past couple of years, we weren't able to have it with social distancing Mm -hmm. and all of that. But nothing matches that, right? It's one thing to read about a person's experiences in a book or in an article, but to truly, like you said, to be in community with someone, to learn about their experiences one-on-one, to have that conversation and learn about how you can hopefully be a part of the solution or sharing information about it in general. That's the key. We need to be part of the solution. I know, for example, I have volunteers to talk to people about oral health in some community center, about when they need to start taking care of the kids or the baby tea versus the permanent tea and mm-hmm. things like that. I start putting the kid with the bottle of bed at night. Little things that can make a difference rather than just 
focus on the problem. We need to figure out what can we do to do better. And it, it is it is a work for everyone because when we live in a community that provides some of those components, we all benefit. We all benefit regardless of our socioeconomic status or everything. If we have access to cultural center or to uh, screening right in our neighborhood, we can all benefit from that. So the more collaboration we have, especially some of us that are academic and things like that, the more we get integrated with those community organizations, the better we can serve the community. So we all could do a little bit to make things better. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcasts for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.